The name Frances Farmer may be recognizable to fans of the band Nirvana, as she is referenced in the title of their song, Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle, and also became an inspiration to lead singer Kurt Cobain. She was also the subject of the 1982 cult classic, Frances, starring Jessica Lange in her first Oscar-nominated role in a dramatic retelling of Farmer's life. However, Frances's own career and life story have been pushed under the rug throughout the years, and I thought she would make the perfect subject for the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast, since our aim is to shift the focus onto them as a person. In the first place, I wanted to be able to tell something of my uh, own experiences to help people who have, I know, uh, been uh, in the same kind of predicament. I received so many letters. Uh, People who want hope or advice, even which perhaps I can suggest where they can find it. Yes. It's that sort of thing that uh, I wanted to do for them and for myself. I would very much like to correct some impressions which arose out of a lot of stories that were written about me, I guess, but they weren't about me. There's suggesting things that I could possibly have been doing, which I never did. I wasn't in a position to defend myself at the time these stories were published, and I'm very happy to be here tonight to let people see that I am the kind of person I am and not a legend that arose. Right. Well, we're going to try to help you do that, Francis. While it is most likely impossible to separate fact from fiction in relation to Francis's story, I read and watched as much material as I could get my hands on and noted consistencies and known historical facts for the episode you are about to listen to. I tried to include as many of Frances's own words, both written and spoken, to paint as complete a picture of her as possible. Thank you so much for listening to the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. I am your host, Audrey Cornell. Enjoy the episode. Frances Elena Farmer was born September 19, 1913, in Seattle, Washington, to Lillian and Ernest Farmer, who was a lawyer. She had two older siblings, Wesley and Edith, as well as a half-sibling from her mother's first marriage, named Rita. The farmer's first child, named Zella, after Lillian's sister, died from pneumonia after being moved to live in a cold back room when Ernest's mother came to visit. This was something that Lillian held against her husband for the rest of their lives. Lillian became a dietitian, much to the embarrassment of her family, because of her strong views. Frances later wrote that her mother became Carrie Nation with a potholder, referencing an infamous anti-alcohol advocate who was known for attacking barrooms with her hatchet. However, Lillian did grow quite a loyal following. She was also involved in the suffragette movement and frequently spoke her mind about the harm men had done and continued to cause in America. Ernest preferred not to be present in his wife's excursions and would often spend his time working on his cases instead. About her mother's lack of love for her, Frances later wrote, I can still remember the early feelings of loneliness and puzzlement that it induced. I loved my mother with all my heart, but I seldom felt a demonstrative return. William Arnold wrote in the book Shadowland that there was a paradox regarding Lillian V. Farmer. Her image changed like a chameleon. She seemed a mass of contradictions. She was highly intelligent and extremely eccentric. She was a strong-willed, uncompromising woman who did many irrational things. She was the kind of woman for whom being a mother was everything, and yet she would do things in the name of motherhood that would seem almost unthinkable. When Frances was four, her parents separated, and they moved to Los Angeles to live with her mother's sister, Zella. 
Shortly after, they moved into a home right across from MGM Studios. Money became a problem for Lillian and her three children, especially since Ernest often did not pay for support and the United States was in the midst of World War I. Five years later, the family moved to Chico, California, where they lived in a quaint one-room cabin that Lillian had inherited from her mother. She earned money by making food displays for the County Farm Bureau and the State Agricultural Department. In 1925, 11-year-old Frances and her siblings were sent back to Seattle to live with their father, while their mother stayed back in Chico to focus on her nutrition research. Frances said that, For Wesley, Edith, and me, the move back to Seattle was both an exciting adventure and a distressing one. I remember the feeling of loneliness and confusion when we said goodbye to Mom. I think I was a little wary, too, of meeting the stranger who was our father. Their Aunt Zella drove them to Oregon, where their father picked them up and went back on a train to Seattle. In certain ways, that train trip represented the end of my dependent childhood. I began to understand that there were certain things one could expect from adults and others that one could not expect. Being shunted from one household to another was a new adjustment, a fresh confusion, and I groped for ways to compensate for the disorder. From that point on, I was no longer a child. Frances's sister Edith said that the two of them lived with one of their father's clients, while brother Wesley moved in with Ernest in a hotel room. Shortly after her children went to Seattle, Lillian's house in Chico burned down and she had no other choice but to return to her family. They bought a house in a Seattle neighborhood, but Ernest was not allowed to live with them. Frances said, From then on, we had a weekend father. He would come and see us every week and putter in the garden or fix whatever needed repair in the house. It was custom to prevail for many years to come. Around this time, Frances decided that she wanted to become a movie star and became very involved in activities at her new school, West Seattle High. She made her stage debut at the age of 15 in The Pirate's Daughter, playing Hans, a servant in love. She joined the school newspaper and debating club, possibly because controversy was a natural climate at home. In her first of many controversial escapades, Frances's essay titled God Dies won first prize and $100 in a contest sponsored by Scholastic Magazine. She detailed her confusion about how so many awful things were allowed to happen in the world if God existed. Frances soon found herself in the midst of hysteria throughout Seattle. Here's a brief excerpt of her essay. Sometimes I found he was useful to remember, especially when I lost things that were important. After slamming through the house, panicky and breathless from searching, I could stop in the middle of a room and shut my eyes. Please, God, let me find my red hat with the blue trimmings. It usually worked. God became a super father that couldn't spank me. But if I wanted a thing badly enough, he arranged it. That satisfied me until I began to figure that if God loved all his children equally, why did he bother about my red hat and let other people lose their fathers and mothers for always? I began to see that he didn't have much to do about hats, people dying, or anything. They happened whether he wanted them to or not, and he stayed in heaven and pretended not to notice. I wondered a little why God was such a useless thing. It seemed a waste of time to have him. After that, he became less and less, until he was nothingness. Newspapers around the country picked up on the happenings. Frances received over 100 letters about her essay and questioned everyone's anger, saying, I had merely tried to put down my own thoughts and ideas about God, and to me, it seemed an honest enough attempt. Later, in 1937, she told Collier's magazine that the backlash sort of made me feel alone in the world. The more people pointed at me in scorn, the more stubborn I got, 
and when they began calling me the bad girl of West Seattle High, I had to live up to it. In an attempt to get Ernest to officially divorce her, Lillian Farmer moved out of the house, and now Ernest was taking care of the children full-time. Six months later, the Farmers divorced, but their problems were still prevalent. Unfortunately, Ernest was usually late with his alimony payments, eventually causing Lillian to buy a revolver and several blanks. She stormed into his office one day and emptied the blanks at a terrified Ernest. Her son Wesley bailed her out of jail and no charges were pressed. Frances started attending the University of Washington in late 1931, first went into study journalism and following in her brother Wesley's footsteps. Then she switched to English and finally became enthralled by the theater department, deciding to major in drama. She paid for her own tuition by working countless jobs, such as being a camp counselor, movie theater usher, and singing waitress. Sophie Rosenstein, an instructor at the university, said that Frances was a witty and stimulating person and talked at length and with enormous enthusiasm about the art of the theater and the importance of raising it above the commercial levels of Hollywood and Broadway. What first had begun as a provocative notion became a driving ambition. On her 1958 appearance on the television show, This Is Your Life, Francis's drama teacher, Glenn Hughes, said, Well, of course, in the first place, she was very lovely. Uh, secondly, she was intelligent and eager. She always had a, a sort of intellectual chip on her shoulder, <laughs> and her uh, dramatic talent was uh, a bit slow in developing. Uh, but uh, we didn't worry about that because we knew the talent was there. She was hard to cast. So it was the third year that she was with us before we found a vehicle suited to her talent to bring it out to star her. That was the Catherine Cornell role in Sidney Howard's uh, Alien Corn. And she did a very beautiful job in that, and uh, it started her on her starring career. The play ran 50 nights, which is a record for a college production. In Alien Corn, Francis played a stifled German musician, described in the University of Washington paper as an actress, concert pianist, and linguist. The role required her to speak German, which Francis did fluently. One critic wrote that, the name of Frances Farmer, who has a divine and tangible maturity to her acting, is destined for electric lights on Broadway. Frances began studying the Stanislavski method and continued to perform in productions for the school, including comedies and morality plays. In the spring of 1935, a controversial Seattle newspaper called The Voice of Action announced a contest that the person who sold the most subscriptions to the paper would win an all-expenses-paid trip to Moscow, Russia, leaving from New York City. Francis's friends decided to collect subscriptions among themselves and then sign them under Francis's name. She ended up winning by a mere $2.50. Francis was elated as this gave her the opportunity to visit the home of Stanislavski's methods in the Moscow Art Theater. Her mother Lillian was absolutely against Francis going to Russia telling anyone who would listen that her daughter was a raging communist. Newspapers picked up on the goings-on, making Francis into first a local and then even a national celebrity. Lillian told the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, If I must sacrifice my daughter to communism, I hope other mothers save their daughters before they are turned into radicals in our schools. She also told the Seattle Times that, Francis says she wants to study the Russian theater. I don't see how she can absorb much of it in 10 days, which is as long as she says she'll be there. I don't see how anyone can absorb much of anything in that period of time. 
Since she was 21 and legally an adult, Frances could do as she pleased and decided to take the trip. It was Mom's own edict that she had drummed into me since childhood. Make up your own mind. I wanted Mother's love. I needed her approval, and I suffered painfully under her deep anger at my anarchy. She penned an article for the Seattle Times titled, Why I Am Going to Russia, in which she wrote, My interest in Russia and my delight at the opportunity to go there and see things at first hand is purely artistic. I am interested in the Russian drama. Russia is artistically one of the most interesting and outstanding in the world. The chance to view at first hand one of the ten most important theatrical centers is the best thing that could happen to me. Well, of course, I was very excited, as you can imagine, being able to uh, go, first of all, to New York, and beyond that, to Moscow, where the theater was a much talked about thing. The Moscow Art Theater is one of the finest in the world. And it sort of set me off on my acting career, and I thought, now, finally, I'm about to become an actress. And I stayed in New York when I got back. In late March 1935, Frances left Seattle for New York City by bus with $100 in her pocket. She was simultaneously excited and upset, later writing that, even though I returned to Seattle many times in the future, I knew I could never really go home again. In New York, she first became acquainted with the group theater, which she wrote had spearheaded the Stanislavski method of acting in the U.S. in 1931, and by 35 had already left a decisive impression on the American theater. Frances left from New York on a ship called the Washington, where she met an Englishman named John Mackenzie, whom she took up a relationship with. Promising to meet him again in Paris, Frances then took a train to Russia with a group of students from around the world. Except for the planned events and views of Moscow sites, I was left very much alone and had no feeling of being under surveillance at any time. To the Russians, I was just another student tourist and certainly no tool for them to manipulate. Frances met again with John Mackenzie in Paris and was quite committed to him. She cashed in her ticket back to Seattle and decided to stay in New York City, moving in with her college friend Jane Rose. She wrote articles for The Voice of Action about her trip to Russia and attempted to kickstart her acting career. Frances was introduced to Broadway producer Shepard Traub, who signed her to a contract. She caught the eye of Paramount producer talent chief Oscar Serlin, who convinced her to do a screen test. She was assigned to do a scene from The Lake in a role that had originally starred Katherine Hepburn on the stage. Frances later wrote, For the first time, I have been able to work on my acting with complete concentration, and I glimpse progress for the first time. I feel I am putting my best foot forward in this test, and if it fails, I'll blame it on fate. A friend of John Mackenzie came to visit her, and they ended up having a brief affair. When Mackenzie came to visit her in New York, she learned that he had sent his friend as a kind of ambassador to find out what kind of girl I was, and if I were worth the trouble of a divorce. In retrospect, John Mackenzie was the most significant love relationship of my life. The test did not bring immediate results, but a couple months later, Oscar Serlin offered Francis a seven-year contract with Paramount starting at $100 a week. Francis found that her parents were pleased with her success and ended up forgiving her for her abandonment of them to go to Russia. Francis said that Hollywood was dangling in front of me. I wanted to reach out and take it, yet I wanted something else to be a serious actress in the legitimate theater. On the other hand, the movie contract would save me from the jaws of poverty. I thought, if I don't make a success in Hollywood, I can always come back to New York and try again. On her 22nd birthday, Frances signed the contract with Paramount. In 1936, she told the Seattle Times that, they did all sorts of things to me in New York when I had my screen test, 
They shaved off my eyebrows. It was like sitting in a dentist's chair, wondering what tooth he'd pull out next. And they cut my hair, gave me a permanent wave, and experimented with makeup. I got up and looked in the mirror and saw a new face. But when I got out to Hollywood, they didn't seem to notice me so much, and so I finally got my eyebrows back. I've been trying to be natural ever since, and I'm beginning to succeed, I think. Frances moved to Los Angeles a few weeks later and got to work on becoming a star. The acting classes brought Frances great joy, where she was taught by Phyllis Lawton. In one class, she befriended Life Erickson, who was also a recent Paramount discovery. They began receiving attention in fan magazines as they were often spotted going out together. Frances started filming her first movie, Too Many Parents, about a group of boys who are sent to military school since their parents are neglectful. She played a secretary who becomes close to the main character. Now suppose you tell me what you're not crying about. He didn't come to see it. Well, maybe he couldn't. He hates me. That's why I didn't come. Phil, you mustn't say things like that. I know he hates me. You know, sometimes I feel just a little sorry for your father. I wouldn't like to have a boy who didn't trust me. You don't know at all why I didn't show up. Lots of things might have happened to him. Maybe, maybe he was in a plane and, and they had to make a forced landing. Certainly. Now you snap out of it. You won't tell him that, that I didn't trust him, will you? No, of course not. Because I know you're going to from now on, aren't you? Around this time, Erickson proposed marriage, which was the furthest thing Frances had on her mind. Even though she did care about Erickson, she did not love him, but they eloped anyway on February 8, 1936, in Yuma, Arizona. Frances's sister Edith claimed that Frances told her that she had purposely dropped the wedding ring in a storm drain after the ceremony. About her daughter's marriage, Lillian Farmer told the Seattle Times that she was simply floored. Whatever she does is all right with me. It's her life to live. I'm happy to know that she's married and settled down, but they must have decided very suddenly. Frances has been very busy in pictures. She told me in a letter several days ago she's just starting another. Lillian was also quoted as saying that she had never heard of Life Erickson. Frances's first big movie was alongside Bing Crosby in Rhythm on the Range. Pleased to be working with Crosby, whom she found very professional and helpful, Frances said she had had a crush on him since my high school days and stood in awe of the fact that in my first important film, I was actually working as his leading lady. She played an heiress who runs away from home to do something important with her life, running into Crosby's rodeo cowboy along the way. The film was one of the highest grossing of 1936, and the New York Sun described Frances as an engaging personality. You dummy, you're backing up! What are you yelling at me for? You're in your beloved West, aren't you? Well, why don't you lie down and wallow in it? Out with the gears, you're a little harder. And the dust is a little thicker and the mud a whole lot deeper. And the girl rates a little lower and the bull rates a little higher. And the men are a whole lot, a whole lot awfuler. That's where the West begins. Frances was favorable with Paramount as she had both married a fellow rising star and co-starred with Bing Crosby, who was one of the most popular leading men of the era. However, she did not particularly like working on the film, telling Collier's Magazine that she had no idea what the picture was about all the time I was making it. I never did find out. I was just the tall, skinny dame while Crosby and Martha Ray and Bob Burns were having the time of their lives. It was a long, sweet nightmare for me.
Francis often put down the movie industry in interviews with the press, which was the last thing an obedient starlet was expected to do. Paramount head Adolf Zucker was livid that Francis would not play along, thinking, now that she is a star, she'd have to start acting like one. This started a rift between Francis and Hollywood that would only grow as years went by. She was expected to dress in the latest fashions and take part in publicity events. Frances refused, finding more comfort in her slacks and sweaters and spending time at home with Erickson, either studying scripts or going on nature hikes. She prized her privacy in an industry that depended on publicity. Zucker loaned Frances out to Samuel Goldwyn Studios for her biggest role to date, playing both a mother and daughter in a multi-generational logging film called Come and Get It, based on a novel written by Edna Ferber. The part was originally given to Miriam Hopkins, but director Howard Hawks vetoed that decision since he had disliked working with Hopkins on Barbary Coast. Then, Andrea Leeds was considered, but Frances was eventually chosen, and Leeds was cast as her character's aunt. Frances studied women in the red-light district of Los Angeles, adopting their mannerisms. She would even wear the corsets for her costumes at home so she could adjust to the fit. Things went smoothly at the beginning when the film was helmed by Hawks. Unfortunately, issues began to arise between producer Goldwyn and Hawks. Author Scott Brevold wrote that Goldwyn had told Hawks, I want you to make this. Do anything you want to do. Hawks told Ferber, This isn't such a good story, he wrote. You really ducked around all the issues. Goldwyn told Hawks that the new scenes were just what he wanted, and he asked Hawks who wrote them. I said I did, and he said, Director shouldn't write, and Hawks quit. Ironically, when Weiler came in, he used the scenes Hawks had written. Goldwyn biographer A. Scott Berg wrote that Hawks and Goldwyn had an argument about how much Hawks had changed from the original script. What had been a story about the destruction of the land due to logging had turned into a love triangle between Edward Arnold, Francis, and Joel McRae's characters, and Goldwyn ended up firing Hawks. Either way, Hawks was gone, and a new director, William Wyler, was forced to complete the movie or be suspended, with only a couple of weeks left on filming schedule. He most likely was responsible for the entire last 30 minutes of the film. Wyler later said, I was talked into doing it, and I've been sorry about that ever since. The picture wasn't very good. The set was tense from then on, and Francis and Wyler did not get along, which was a downgrade since she had worked well with Hawks who later said that Frances was probably the best actress I've ever worked with. She had looks and ability. She could do anything, had a great personality. Frances was proud of her performance in the first half of the movie, which was the role she had been most interested in from the beginning, but felt her role as the daughter was less than satisfactory. Ironically, Variety wrote that Farmer is much more effective in the less colorful daughter part. As the dance hall lady, she overdoes the hard-boiled stuff to an extreme and tends to make it a burlesque, rather than a sincere character study. On the other hand, the Seattle Times said that Frances portrays the two characters of mother and daughter with such fine understanding and admirably restrained emotional appeal as to lift her immediately to a place high among the screen's more gifted players. Now let's see, where were we? Oh yeah, now look, can you give me any good reason why you can't go home? Are you gonna That's start That's a good idea, Lord. Say, what are you, a couple of missionaries? I'm getting sick now, of... Now, wait a minute. You keep quiet and listen. I'm not nosy. I'm on the level about this. Why can't you go home to your folks? Because I... Well, if you must know, there's just 165 reasons why I can't go home. And all of them are dollars. Railroad fare, huh? Ain't that enough? You think that kind of money grows on trees? <laughs> Mine did. 
Now look, here's enough for your railroad fare and some to tide you over until you get yourself a decent job. They get a few dollars too. What's the catch? No catch. I like you. They like you too, Lock. You don't belong here, that's all. Go on, take it. It's all velvet. Come and Get It premiered on November 6th, 1936 at the Liberty Theater in Seattle, which was where Francis used to work as an usher. The film was a smash success and Francis was officially considered an actor. Critics even said she was as great as, and perhaps greater, than Garbo. A high compliment as well as a daunting mantle to take on. Being back in Seattle allowed Frances time to reconnect with her parents, and since she was a successful star now, all seemed to be forgiven. Even the hometown that had ostracized Frances as a teenager now welcomed with open arms. However, in Collier's magazine, she was quoted as saying that the studio wanted her to autograph copies of Come and Get It at the Bon Marche, a department store in downtown Seattle, where I had been fired a couple of years back. That was bad enough, but think of me autographing a book written by somebody else. That took crust, but it didn't turn out so badly, because when I got to the store, about 20 people finally strolled in and looked at me from a distance and kept their buying firmly in control. What the Goldwyn people had forgotten was that up that way, I'm still remembered as the freak from West Seattle High. In December, Francis was loaned out to RKO Studios for The Toast of New York, a biopic about three peddlers played by Edward Arnold, Cary Grant, and Jack Oakey, who end up on Wall Street in the aftermath of the Civil War. Francis played a maid who was made over to be an actress. Francis was unhappy with the character, which had been changed drastically. In Francis's autobiography, Will There Really Be a Morning, it says, Instead of a cheap vixen, they wanted an ingenue fresh from Sunnybrook. So I rebelled. I argued with the producer. I fought with the director and got into verbal knockdown, drag-out battles with the writers. Thank you, Nick. That's all right, Josie. What else could I do? Did you really mean what you told them about me? No. I was thinking of Jim. Ever since I've known you, Nick, you've been fighting me because of Jim. You knew how he felt and you didn't want to hurt him, so you tried to hurt me. And you succeeded for a while, till I discovered the reason. What is the reason? You're in love with me. I'm in love with you. During filming, Francis became incredibly active in political activism and volunteered with organizations that supported the Loyalists in the Spanish Civil War, who were trying to defend the democratically elected government. She also organized rallies and raised money to aid migrant farm workers in the San Joaquin Valley who were living in poverty. While still shooting The Toast of New York, Frances already began working on her latest film, Exclusive, opposite Fred McMurray. Why, isn't it true? Well, it's true that he offered me the job, but... Uh, but he turned it down. You turned it down? He as good as kicked Gillette right out of the office. How? Well, you did, didn't you? Oh, honey, don't take it like that. You see, yeah, you didn't expect us to work for a guy like Gillette, did you? 300 a week. Oh, fine. Now, try to understand. So you turned it down, huh? Okay, now, hold your horses, Ma. A man doesn't spend his whole life in a decent profession and then turn around just like that and kick it in the pants. Well, look, honey, Gillette isn't figuring on running a newspaper. He's figuring on running a racket. You wouldn't expect me to... No, I wouldn't expect you to be anything but a high-minded mug. You'd risk your neck for a two-cent scoop. 
You've got the nerve to ask a Max murderer to hold it for a picture. There she goes again, Ralph. And when it comes to making your jobs pay enough for a decent living, you... Oh, what's the use? I'm sick of worms with high-minded principles. Give me a Babbitt that would fight for his family. Ralph, why don't you be a Babbitt and marry the girl? Oh, you heard her. She called me a worm. Oh, but a high-minded worm, that's different. Now she doesn't love me. Well, I wish I didn't. What have you got besides a pair of lop ears and a face like the business end of an old mop? What's the matter with you, Viner? Ever since you've been bringing home a few bucks a week, you've been awful uppity. No more uppity. I got fired today. Fired? Yep, you did? Well, if my menfolk can afford to turn down big jobs, I guess I can afford to be fired. Now, Viner. Maybe I'll get myself a newspaper job. Hello, girl. You don't think I could? You, oh, sure. Sure, sure. Viner, the sob sister. <laughs> Advice to loving hearts by Viner Swain. <laughs> Now, Todd, you know right well that she was editor of her college paper. Boy, there was a paper, I mean. Agnes, get a hold of Willie Schwartz. Find out what's behind the apple he brought the teacher today. <laughs> get a statement. Yeah, get a picture of the apple. <clears throat> Three-column spread. Jenny Tweep wins spelling bee. Get a picture of Tweep sitting on her speller. <laughs> get a picture of the bee. Yeah, get a picture. <laughs> All right, go on. Laugh your fat heads off. Many a story I've written for you when you were too tight to write it yourself. And you can bet if I got in the newspaper game, I'd make them pay off in money, not in high-minded principles. 1937 also brought her first and only Technicolor film, Ebb Tide, with Ray Milland. This exhausting schedule came to a breaking point when Francis collapsed on the set of Ebb Tide and was hospitalized twice. Most reviews of the film focused on her looks, as she memorably appeared in a sarong, although the New York Times added that her shoulders were made to bear a weightier dramatic burden. All of the hard work was seeming to pay off professionally, though, as Francis was set to star with some of the biggest leading men of the era, like Gary Cooper and Clark Gable. Her sister Edith said that the marriage between Francis and Life was strained, as Life was jealous that his career was not advancing at the same pace as his wife's. He was mainly appearing in smaller roles in B pictures. The Toast of New York was one of the biggest flops of the year, and lead Edward Arnold was promptly labeled box office poison. The New York Times wrote that, Miss Farmer comes as close to justifying a place in the picture as anyone could in this familiar formula Arnold show, with a vigorous period to lend it interest, a tendency toward opera boff to weaken it. Paramount suspended Frances when she turned down a role in Beaugest and was replaced by Susan Hayward. Her suspension also likely happened because her last few movies had not done well at the box office. In a 1958 interview for Coronet Magazine, Francis said, For the first time, I asked myself, where am I going? Do I want to go there? I was torn between Hollywood success and the group theater ideal of art. Meanwhile, even my marriage was beginning to crash. I took myself and the world and the war pressing in on us then very seriously. While in New York for one of her plays, Frances was offered to join the prestigious group theater and appear in Clifford Odette's play, Golden Boy. Rehearsals began in September 1937, and the cast included Luther Adler, John, then credited as Jules, Garfield, Lee J. Cobb, Elia Kazan, and Martin Ritt. Frances played Lorna, the girlfriend of a prize-fighting promoter who falls in love with the lead, played by Luther Adler. The show ran for 248 performances throughout 1937 and 38, landing Frances a spread in Life magazine. She loved the atmosphere of working with the collective and found the stage more fulfilling than Hollywood. 
Max Breen wrote in a 1938 article for Picture Gore Weekly that he applauded her heartily for breaking down a tradition. Last October, Francis asked for and readily obtained leave of absence for six months from the Paramount Studios so that she might go and play on the Broadway stage. Her reason is said to be that she was dissatisfied with parts offered to her recently. Paramount's reason for letting her go need not be inquired into too closely, though I remember the deep sigh of relief that went up on the radio lot when Katherine Hepburn went to Broadway to play in the lake. That colossal flop of Katie started something. It began a tradition, and a thoroughly bad tradition at that. It started people saying, it's no use for a movie star, even with stage experience, to go to Broadway thinking she can act. She just can't, that's all. Certainly, it's true that a good film actress is not necessarily a good stage actress, but it's utterly false to say that she can't be. Anyway, Frances went and played in Concord. That is to say, she was a success in a difficult part, and thus a bad young tradition is busted wide open, with Frances standing triumphantly with one neat foot resting on the carcass, and presumably more sure of herself than ever. However, in reality, Frances felt like an outsider, and even more out of place, since she was in the midst of an affair with Golden Boy's writer, Clifford Odets, as her marriage with life Erickson had long since crumbled. After working in Hollywood on The General Died at Dawn, Odets married actress Louise Rayner in 1937. He returned to New York for Golden Boy while Rayner was in Europe. Edith Farmer wrote that Odette's was an unattractive man in looks, but his intense animal magnetism both attracted and repelled Francis. His pretense of concern and sympathy found an easy target in her unhappiness. For weeks, he held her in the grips of emotional slavery. Despite their separation as a married couple, Francis and Life Erickson often worked together as publicity for the group theater in New York City. They then appeared together in a film called Ride a Crooked Mile, a mix between a Western and prison drama. William Arnold wrote in Shadowland that Frances was required to stand on the sidelines and mouth a lot of maudlin dialogue. The film was her punishment for all the critical remarks she had made about Hollywood. Frances claimed she did the movie as a favor to Erickson. She discovered she was pregnant around this time and felt that Erickson was more invested in his career than fatherhood so had a back-alley abortion performed that prevented her from being able to have children ever again. Golden Boy went on the road in September 1938, opening in Chicago and closing in Washington, D.C. in December. While in Washington, Francis met with the Spanish ambassador to the United States to publicize a national food drive for the children of Spain. She also took part in a 1938 roundtable discussion in relation to Rhode Island Senator Theodore Green, about the state of the world and his future plans. The discussion was recorded and broadcast on the air. Frances's portions display how strong-willed and opinionated she was. In one point, she discussed the censorship of strikes in both films and movies, thinking it was ridiculous. The only reason they won't let pictures of strikes be shown is that they want to keep the information back from the people so that the people will not be able to pass an intelligent opinion of whether a strike is justified or not. In other words, they want the people to accept their opinion of a strike and not form their own opinion. Now, that is not in the tradition of democracy. That is not in the tradition of America. And that is my objection. I want to be informed and everybody else ought to be informed on this very important subject. And I am not willing to surrender my right to form an independent judgment to anybody. 
When she returned to New York, Frances was devastated to learn that she was being replaced by Lillian Emerson for the London production of Golden Boy, an opportunity that she had been expecting and hoping for. Odette's also ended their relationship and returned to his wife, Louise Rayner, by sending Frances a telegram that read simply, My wife returns from Europe today, and I feel it best for us never to see each other again. Shepard Traub sued Francis for $75,000 for breach of contract, claiming that since he had helped her get the screen test with Paramount, she owed him 10% of her salary over the years she had worked in Hollywood. The case went in Francis's favor, as Traub's involvement had solely been with the screen test. Unfortunately, all of these events culminated in worsening Francis's depression, and she began drinking heavily to deal with her issues. After performing in several small and unsuccessful plays with the group, Frances had her last chance with The Fifth Column, a story about the Spanish Civil War, and was to be directed by Lee Strasberg. Frances later wrote, For days I went around in a state of shock. Liquor seemed to dull every instinct, and I indulged with great frequency. Adding that, during rehearsals, I lived in a state of suspended animation and functioned in a kind of blind, desolate haze. I attended rehearsals but couldn't work without collapsing in a flood of tears. She left in the midst of rehearsals due to her emotional and physical stress and was fined $1,500 by the theater and replaced by Catherine Locke. The show ended up running for two months before being deemed a failure and officially marked the end of the group. Frances was shunned from the New York theater scene and had no choice but to return to Hollywood to earn a living where she was not received much better. In a 1938 profile for Movie Mirror, the author wrote that, the question before the house is whether Frances, who admittedly has not measured up to the expectations of the public since her remarkable performance in Come and Get It, will become a sensation again with triumphant performances or if her natural desire to go it alone will get the best of her. Frances was loaned out to United Artists for 1940s, south of Pago Pago, about a group of pirates who visit an island to loot it. The film was deemed a stuffy and cliché affair, but popular films of the 40s wrote that Farmer tosses off wisecracks like a junior May West. The opportunity to see the legendary farmer in a role which, if not exactly typical, she certainly plays to the hilt. Even after Frances had been shunned by the group theater, she still helped the members who were now struggling after the closure of the theater by getting them work in Hollywood. John Garfield, her fellow group cast member, pushed for Frances to be given a role in Flowing Gold, a story about the complicated relationships between workers of an oil company. What's the matter with you, Johnny? You've been acting very funny lately. Oh, tired, I guess. Well, you better come in before Joe and Luke eat all the beans. I'm not very hungry. I saved a piece of apple pie that Tilly brought out yesterday. Thanks. Johnny, you must have something on your mind. You don't even fight with me anymore. Well, I was just thinking about the well. All that oil down there, a million years, waiting for somebody to come and get it. Oh, you'll get it, Johnny. That's what I'm trying to do for you and Hap. Well, why just for me and Hap? After all, you're a partner now, aren't you? Well, it means more to you two than it does to anybody else, doesn't it? Johnny, you... You think that I'm in love with Hap. 
don't you? Well, you write to him nearly every day. <laughs> of course I write to him. He's in the hospital. He's lonely. But if I'm in love with anyone, it's not with Hap. Oddly enough, both Garfield and Francis had been in the stage production of Golden Boy, but were overlooked by Columbia Pictures for the 1939 film adaptation. Garfield's home studio, Warner Brothers, refused to loan him out for the movie, and instead replaced him with William Holden in his first film role. Barbara Stanwyck played the role that Francis had originated with the group. This came as a blow to both Garfield and Francis's respective careers. In the summer of 1940, Francis went to Massachusetts to perform in productions of Little Women and Our Betters at the Cape Playhouse and rented a home in Santa Monica, California in 1941. She started writing a memoir, which would unfortunately be destroyed in later years. Her last movies with Paramount all released in 1941. World Premiere, a screwball comedy about a group of Hollywood actors in Washington, D.C. for a movie premiere. I will, Mark. I know I will. With working with you, the desert. Without your help, I'm nothing but... Uh... Nothing but a cheap, two-timing little sense. Shut like, up. Suppose you mind your own preserve and quit poaching on mine? I don't have to take that from you. None of your business if Mr. Saunders wants to take an interest in me. Only her career. Uh... Now, listen, my pet. You centipede. You certainly managed to keep your strong, manly arms busy, don't you? I'm no chump, Mark. You're on the prowl again. Kitty, can I help it if I've got magnetism? All these little butterflies want to dash themselves to pieces against me. Well, I'll get you a mosquito net. Badlands of Dakota, a semi-true story about the town of Deadwood, Dakota. Francis played Calamity Jane. Sorry to butt in on you. I wanted to see what a lady... Looked like. Well, really? Jane, there's been a mistake. A big mistake. You thought you could horn in, did you? Well, there ain't no place in this camp for ladies. You're going out in the next stage. Well, this is Jane, Mary. Never mind the introductions. I'll tell her who I am. Me and Bob helped settle this town. We trapped for food before the wagon trains come. And we fought engines before there were soldiers. And when the smallpox hit us, I nursed him through it. Could you have done that with your pretty face and your fine clothes? You can only listen to me. I've listened long enough. I'm doing the talking now. No frizzly-haired, hoity-toity petticoat rustler's going to beat my time. There's something I want to tell you, Jane. Jim and I were married in Fort Pierre. You? And him? Hello, Jane. I was just thinking about you. I'll bet. I've been meaning to talk to you for a long time, but you know how fellas keep putting things off. Yeah. I know. I know you take it like a sport. I had it all figured out. I knew just what I was going to say to you, and I knew just about what you were going to say to me. What did you figure you'd say to me first? Well, let me see. I was, I was going to say, Jane, we've been partners a long time, strictly business, of course. And, well, now that we're calling it quits, no hard feelings, huh? Yeah, I remember. We promised to have a last drink together with big smiles all around. That's right. I won't need that today. Jane, look, I want to talk to you seriously. Now that, uh, now that we're through, I, I got a little present for you. Here. Had it all planned, didn't you? Well, I just wanted to give you a start someplace else. I didn't want you to rob banks or anything. That's where you went wrong. You don't owe me nothing. 
I don't know you're nothing. After all the years we've known each other? Yeah, after all the years we've known each other. You didn't think I had enough style for you, is that it? You wanted a wife you could be proud of, one you could show off in front of the whole town. A girl all wrapped up with lace and pink ribbons, a Sunday school look in her eye. Wait a minute, Wait a minute, I'm just getting unwound. What do you think I've been following you around for? You thought you could buy me off, put me on a pension? Well, you can keep it. Now, that girl you picked is your idea of a beautiful, faithful, trusting female. I'm downright sorry for you. Jane! What would you think if I told you your Miss High and Mighty, better than them all, is already married? That's a lie. Sure it is. And here's another one. The man she's married to is Jim, your own brother. They got married in Fort Pier on the way up here. Buy your way out of that one. And next time, don't come running back to me. And Among the Living, a noir about a man whose mentally disturbed and murderous twin brother starts to cause him trouble after he breaks out of isolation. Nurse, come with me now, this knitage. And Sherry, I have a very sick patient over in Mayville. Doctor, you can't leave now. You've got to tell the truth about John. You're the only one who can clear him. If I cleared John, it means the end of everything I've spent years building up. You can't. Heartless. I'm sorry. 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 Francis starred alongside acting great John Barrymore in world premiere, which was Barrymore's second-to-last film, and he was in poor condition. While Francis was excited to be working with such a revered actor, Edith Farmer wrote that he was sick and alcoholic to the point where he could barely remember his lines from one minute to the next. Francis knew the implication of what lay ahead for performers who outlive their talents and good looks. Her last major role came in Son of Fury, a 1942 period piece about a man, played by Tyrone Power, who struggles with his uncle over his rightful inheritance. Originally, Ida Lupino was set to play the character, but was cast in Moontide instead. Lupino was then replaced by Maureen O'Hara, who fell ill after an emergency appendectomy, and then Cobina Wright Jr. got sick. Thus, Francis was cast. Well, he's won. One? I hear yeah, the proofs in court and gained his release. Well, follow me, Pratt's behind him. No barrister in England to take a case against Pratt. Then, Breatham is his? Aye. Well, don't you understand? We're ruined. You are. I'm not. What do you mean? I didn't tell you why I came here that night. It was to ask me to remain here. As his wife. Not really. Now that has possibilities. Yes. As a fond father, I might even be persuaded to give my blessing to such a brilliant marriage. I'm afraid your blessing won't be appreciated. I intend to make it appreciated. What do you mean? You are my daughter. We understand each other. Well? I know your marriage will be a happy one. I only hope that in your happiness you will not be tempted to forget your poor father now that he is broken and humbled. Why should I forget you? Oh, I'm certain you won't. I'm counting on the milk of human kindness, which I'm sure you're not allowed to... Um, curdle within you for your filial affection. Come to the point. If you insist. In case you are tempted, I ask you only to remember 
that we share one secret which might be of interest to the happy bridegroom. Go on. A strange fellow, Ben. Moody. Quick to take offense. What would he say, for instance, if you were to learn who told me that I'd find him at the Georgian Crown the night that he was arrested? What would you say to that, my dear? You wouldn't dare. <laughs> wouldn't I? Even if you did, he wouldn't believe you. Why do you think he came back? For revenge? No. For me. He loves me. All his life, he's worshipped me. He'll do anything I ask him. Believe anything I tell him. Even if you were to swear to him in a Bible. Ben. You mustn't believe what he says. It isn't true, Ben. It isn't true. Son of Fury's original ending was changed, as 20th Century Fox studio head Daryl F. Zanuck had declared that his films in 1942 would not have sad endings after the public outcry of Tyrone Power's character's death in Blood and Sand. The book depicted Jean Tierney's character committing suicide after Power leaves her and remains with Francis. In the film, he returns to Tierney instead, positing Francis as the scorned woman. The film was remade in 1953, titled Treasure of the Golden Condor. After turning down Take a Letter Darling with Paramount, Francis was suspended and decided to take a vacation, renting a cabin in the Solduck Hot Springs, where she had gone camping with her father, with her father as a child. Life Erickson officially divorced Francis on June 12, 1942, and married actress Maggie Hayes on the same day. In an interview with Walter Rue for an article around this time, she confirmed that there was no new romance either. I'm too busy with my work to bother about such things. Why did your marriage to life fail, Francis? Well, I, I guess neither one of us really should have married each other. We, he wasn't to blame and neither was I. We had different goals and different directions and we realized that uh, we'd be better to... Uh, just to let the marriage uh, go and go on our separate ways. And it was a very difficult emotional decision for both of us, but uh, we did get divorced and we've been divorced ever since. On October 19, 1942, Francis was driving home and stopped by a motorcycle policeman for driving with high beam lights on in a dim out zone, which was a World War II restriction enacted around the coasts of the United States. Frances did not have her driver's license on her and was taken to the Santa Monica police station, charged with driving without a license as well as for drunk driving, although Frances denied she was under the influence. She was fined $150 and given probation for two years. She waited for eight hours in a jail cell until her agent bailed her out. The arrest caused a major scandal for Frances and Paramount canceled her contract. Freelance work for actors was virtually unheard of at this time, so Frances was out of a job. Fortunately, prior to her arrest, she had been offered a part in the independent film Five Were Chosen, which was to be filmed in Mexico City. After traveling there and learning that there was no script to work off of, Frances started to become wary. She was struggling with insomnia and extreme stress and was developing an addiction to amphetamines, which were recommended to her by a doctor to help her lose weight. It wasn't until the 70s that studies found that amphetamines in high quantities can cause symptoms similar to schizophrenia, which may have been cause for Francis's struggles. 
She got into arguments with the director about the film. At one point, she was slapped by a co-star and fought back. Frances was ordered to leave, and her brother Wesley's wife, Ruth, came down to Mexico City to take Frances back to California. When she returned to Hollywood, she discovered that her house had been sublet to a family, and Frances's items were moved to the Knickerbocker Hotel by Ruth and Wesley. Everything was gone except for a few of her clothes. Her brother Wesley had even burned the memoir she had been working on for the past couple of years to keep it from falling into the wrong hands, although it's unclear whose hands he meant. Frances later wrote, I suppose it seems peculiar that I never asked questions or received an accounting, but I didn't give a damn. She was cast in I Escaped from the Gestapo, which was a mess from the start. Frances was upset with the script and wanted a complete rewrite. She became enraged when asked to be bound and gagged for a scene. On January 13, 1943, the Los Angeles Times wrote that, while hairdresser Edna Burge was dressing the actress's hair, the latter suddenly jumped up, struck her in the face, and knocked her down. Frances went back to the Knickerbocker Hotel and got drunk at the bar, while Burge went to the police and filed an assault charge. She learned that there was already a warrant for Frances's arrest, since she had not paid the rest of her fine for her drunk driving arrest the year prior. The Los Angeles Times reported that at 3 in the morning, Frances was located, refused to clothe herself for the trip to the jail, and had to be forcibly attired. The entire evening was highly publicized, meaning someone had tipped the press off about Frances's impending arrest, although it is not known who. Frances caused a scene at the police station, and the New York Daily News wrote that, at police headquarters, she listed her occupation as such an unorthodox one that it caused the booking officer to jump when he read it. This was most likely cocksucker, supposedly Francis's favorite word. Denied any legal counsel, Francis arrived in court and was sentenced to 180 days for violating probation from her prior arrest. William Arnold shared some of Francis's trial transcript in Shadowland, writing that she had not slept for over 36 hours. Judge, since you appeared in this court on October 24th, have you had anything to drink? Francis, yes, I drank everything I could get, including Benzedrine. Judge, you were advised that if you took one drink of liquor or failed to be a law-abiding citizen, Francis, what do you expect me to do? I get liquor in my orange juice and my coffee. Must I starve to death to obey your laws? At the same time of Francis's arrest, screen idol Errol Flynn was on trial for raping three teenage girls and ended up being loved and adored more than ever before. The trial was, quote, extraordinarily good for business, as one newspaper wrote. This just goes to show the double standard within Hollywood, as well as the incredibly one-sided and misogynistic trial proceedings with Flynn's case. While Flynn's star power only grew brighter, Frances was essentially banished for making films. Frances's mother Lillian told reporters that drinking was Frances's trouble. She does it as an escape from herself and her frustrations. She has had bad advice in her professional life from people more interested in her money-making abilities than in her personal welfare. In a 1957 interview, Frances said that she was suffering as a result of an emotional letdown after my divorce, the strain of work, and the problems brought on by my family's wish that I quit Hollywood. Strangely, the narrative has been shifted to posit Lillian as forcing Frances to go back to making movies and her daughter denying, but by Frances's accounts, she wanted to continue acting and was not allowed.
She even continued to receive offers for films such as The Enchanted Cottage. Ruth Farmer, Francis's sister-in-law, was a deputy sheriff in Los Angeles and decided that psychiatric care would be a better option than jail time. Her brother Wesley signed the commitment order. Edith Farmer wrote that both of their parents came from Seattle to work with an attorney to get Francis's sentence changed to a sanity hearing. In Shadowland, Arnold wrote that Frances somehow had no money. Her business agents testified that she had squandered all of her money, given it away to communists, migrant workers, Spanish Civil War groups, her own family, and was now completely destitute. Therefore, the Motion Picture Relief Fund arranged to pay for her admission into La Crescenta, a sanitarium in the San Fernando Valley. Frances was prescribed insulin shots for eight months to treat her depression, which ended up causing her memory and health problems. Arnold wrote that the idea behind it was to induce convulsions and stun the patient's mental sensibilities with a massive shock, after which the mental pieces would fall back into a more realistic or euphoric pattern. Lillian told the Post-Intelligencer that Frances would be there six months, and when she gets out, there will be no more of those miserable roles. Everyone familiar with acting knows that Frances Farmer should not be cast in the kind of picture she's been given. She's been cast as a professional harlot. In the fall of 1943, Frances ran away from the sanitarium, walked 15 miles to her sister Rita's house, and was released into her mother's care in Seattle, where she stayed for several months. During this period, Frances displayed fits of violence and paranoia, causing her parents to admit her to an asylum. In March 1944, Frances was taken to Harborview Hospital and after interviewing with two doctors was diagnosed as schizophrenic and clinically insane. She was ordered to the Western Washington State Hospital for the insane. I didn't think then and I still don't that I was actually sick, but there were so many people who, who seemed to think I was mentally ill that I just had to find out why and, and find out whether it was my fault, what was happening. You know, if you get treated like a patient, why, well, you have to act like one. And uh, these things just pushed me a little too far, and uh, it led to conflicts and strife with my mother. She thought I needed more care, and so she had me committed to the Western State Hospital in Washington. This was on March 23rd, 1944. As quoted from the book, Women of the Asylum, Voices from Behind the Walls. What these accounts document is that many women in asylums were not insane, that help was not to be found in doctor-headed, attendant-staffed, and state-run patriarchal institutions. What we call madness can also be caused or exacerbated by injustice or cruelty within the family, within society, and in asylums, and that personal freedom, radical legal reform, and political struggle are enduringly crucial to individual mental and societal moral health. Unfortunately, it is unknown exactly what Francis endured whilst in the hospital. Theories range from electroshock therapy to insulin injections to hydrotherapy, when patients are put in an icy cold tub for up to eight hours. She was paroled on July 2, 1944, and released into her mother's care. 30-year-old Francis had no personal rights. Lillian had to allow her permission to leave the house, get a job, or have visitors. Lillian arranged a press conference to smooth things over for Frances's image, telling the reporters that her daughter had ambitions to be a nurse. On the other hand, Frances told the Seattle Times that, 
It's all been like a terrible dream and it's wonderful to be home again. One thing is certain, I'm going back to work as soon as I can. It has been a long time since I've held a script in my hands and I'm wondering what it will be like again. If I like the script, it won't make much difference, which it is, stage or screen. The press made a big deal about Frances being completely cured and assured their readers that she was the same Frances they had loved on the screen. However positively she displayed outwardly, Frances was frustrated with her mother's control. She ran away shortly after the press conference, but was found by police and taken to live with her Aunt Edith in Nevada. She ran away twice more and was arrested in California for vagrancy after being considered missing for several days. Newspapers said that she had been found working in a fruit orchard. She was taken back to Seattle in mid-1945, and at some point, Lillian filed a sanity report for Francis for unknown reasons. After Francis disappeared once more, she was caught by police. Lillian told the post-intelligencer that she asked for police assistance because I was terribly worried about Francis. She has never made a full recovery from her illness and will have to be hospitalized again. In a 1947 article written by lauded journalist Ed Guthman, Lillian maintained that Frances had been coerced by communists starting in high school and that had caused her mental breakdown. She said, Men who were admitted communists and who had influence in New York and Hollywood held some terrible threat over her. Frances would never say what it was, but the communists were able to make her do things she didn't want to do. They were continually after her for money, and when she tried to break away, they frightened her into her present mental state. Perhaps the telling of her experiences will save others from being drawn in by the communists' false pretenses. Since Francis was a readmissions case, she was deemed incurable and put in the ward that housed criminals, senile patients, and those with severe mental disabilities. While we don't know exactly what Francis experienced in the hospital, whatever she went through was most certainly inhumane and traumatic. Hospital records do show that Francis endured electroshock treatments for at least three months. Journalist Lucille Cohen began an investigation into the hospital in 1947, writing in 1949 that she found patients jammed into obsolete, antiquated wards in 50-year-old buildings, as much fire traps as the one that burned down at the institution two years ago, taking two patients to their deaths. Lack of space forces the institution to put patients' beds in unheated area ways, open to the weather. Patients are kept in bed for 12 hours because the staff is so small that there isn't adequate help to care for them out of bed for the other 12 hours. Cohen added that patients are sleeping in unheated courts, a canvas covering over apertures their only protection from the rain. Beds are jammed one next to the other. The hospital has 15 graduate nurses for its 2,736 patients. Bad living quarters for staff complicate the problem of getting efficient help. They don't have means for uh, individual psychiatric care. There's only so many beds available. I stood in line with uh, 15 or 20 girls uh, like myself in the hospital for one reason or another. We received shots or hydrotherapy baths or electric shock treatments, and this was supposed to relax the tensions and keep us quiet, which it did. I don't blame the hospital at all. I think they did everything in their power to uh, take care of the enormous number of people they had. But I really don't think it, it, it helped me much. Yes. Of course, uh, had you had money, you could have had uh, psychiatric uh, 
Well, that's the problem with people who have no money at all. There's no other recourse except to an institution like this, and uh, it means that you have to be able to afford proper analysis that could help. The second period at Western State spawned the most widely spread factoid of Francis's life, a theory that is not even true. In his book Shadowland, William Arnold wrote, with no basis of information, that Francis had a lobotomy. The idea was brought up by doctors in 1947, since Francis was considered a hopeless case, but her father stopped the operation from happening, even threatening to sue if any action was taken without permission. Hypothetically, Francis would be an ideal subject for lobotomy, as the doctor, Walter Freeman, was well known for performing lobotomies in front of the press to promote the relatively new operation. In a 1983 article for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, none of the orderlies recalled Francis being a lobotomy patient. Biographer Peter Shelley wrote that, One of Freeman's criteria for operating on a patient was that the onset of mental illness had to be recent, i.e. less than six months. He claimed the procedure helped only the fixation aspect of the psychosis and not the psychosis itself. At this point, Frances had been suffering from her supposed psychosis for years, and Freeman later stated that she was not one of the patients whom he gave a lobotomy. Further, her records state that she was never operated on while at the hospital. Biographer Jeffrey Michael Kaufman wrote that, The troubling aspect to all of this is the regular use of lobotomies during the 40s and 50s at Western State, and indeed at virtually every state institution nationwide, a fact about which they actually seem to be proud in several press releases and formal papers, again belying Arnold's assertions that these operations were somehow shrouded in secrecy. On March 22, 1950, five years after she had been readmitted to the hospital, Frances attended a parole hearing and was allowed back into the custody of her parents. Her mother, Lillian, who is now 76, had suffered two strokes, and Frances's father felt it necessary that she be there to care for her mother. Frances was officially released on March 25, 1950. A passage in Will There Really Be a Morning asks, If my family really believed that I was insane and had kept me all those years in an asylum, why would they risk bringing me out, ever? To be released from a mental institution after so long a confinement is practically unheard of. Yet the facts in my situation are undisputable. A simple letter from my father asking for it freed me. The question then arises, what was I doing there in the first place? Frances took a job to help provide for her parents and did her due diligence, thinking they would send her back to the hospital if she wasn't obedient. It wasn't until 1953 that she learned that she had been formally discharged from the jurisdiction of Western State Hospital on March 25, 1951, but her parents had hidden the information from her. After Frances's father, Ernest, was put into a nursing home in 1953, she requested that her mother's conservatorship be lifted from her. Finally, at the age of 40, Frances was officially in charge of herself and had free will. After 11 years, her mother was no longer her guardian. Frances took a job doing laundry at the Olympic Hotel in Seattle, which is where she had stayed for the premiere of Come and Get It back in 1936. She was set up on a blind date with a city engineer named Alfred Lobley, and they married on April 17, 1954, at the West Seattle Protestant Church. 
Edith Farmer had recently returned to the States a month prior, as she had been living in Hawaii for several years. She took over details for the wedding, but Frances chose to wear a black wedding dress. In an article for the Seattle Times in which the couple announced their impending wedding, the author described Frances and Lobley as being of the age where contentment is a far more desirable thing than the deliriously happy goal sought by honeymooners of Frances Farmer's age when she set out to conquer the stage world, and won for a time. Both Frances and her sister admitted that Frances was never in love with Lobley. Most likely, she married him for security and to escape any possible involvement from her parents. Unfortunately, Frances still had to be involved in her mother's life, as Lillian had recently suffered from a series of strokes and was under the care of her daughter Rita, who after a period was not interested in the responsibility of caring for Lillian. She wanted Frances to take charge, and Frances and Lobley argued often about whether they should take Lillian in with them or have her institutionalized. These disagreements were only exacerbated by both of their drinking problems. After one especially violent quarrel one night, Frances left a passed-out drunk Lobley with all of the money she could scrounge up and bought a bus ticket. Biographer Peter Shelley wrote that Edith said Frances's leaving was a self-preservation mechanism, both in relation to her rejection of Lobley as an alcoholic and Frances's own recognition of an approaching nervous breakdown caused by her guilty feelings over her mother. Lobley hired a private detective to find Frances, but she was nowhere to be found. In fact, she went to Eureka, California, which was a small town, and as far as her money would take her. She was soon hired as a typist and assistant to photographer Oscar Swanland and rented an apartment that was walking distance from the store. In 1955, Swanland was elected mayor and Frances became his personal secretary. While most biographers write that Frances was a loner, she herself said she was quite involved in Swamland and his wife Arvilla's social lives. On March 1, 1955, Lillian Farmer passed away from a stroke, and Ernest Farmer died on July 15, 1956. They were buried next to each other alongside their first daughter, who had died prematurely. One day, a man approached Frances at the liquor store and recognized her, introducing himself as Lee Mikesell. He wanted to help Frances make a comeback and was willing to manage her. Frances said in 1958, My first reaction was no. I thought, I'm safe here. Maybe being a bookkeeper isn't suited to my talents, but there aren't any ups and downs, no tremors and anxieties, no career to tear me in two. Why give this up? And why expose myself to a past which is buried and forgotten? Mike Sill eventually convinced Frances to withdraw her savings and contact him if she ever came to San Francisco. She moved there in May 1957 and took a job as a hotel clerk at the Park Sheridan Hotel. Some biographers maintain that all of this was Mike Sell's plan to have Frances rediscovered, while Will There Really Be a Morning says that Frances was recognized by the hotel's public relations director. Either way, a press conference was promptly held to reintroduce Frances to the public. She was booked on The Ed Sullivan Show for two appearances, the first being in June. She performed R. Lee, the song she had sung in Come and Get It, that had recently been reworked into Elvis Presley's iconic Love Me Tender. As the blackbird in the spring neath the willow tree sat 
woman offered to help Frances write a book about her life, while Edith Farmer wrote to her brother Wesley that she wanted to be the one to write the biography. Peter Shelley says that Frances had already agreed to meet with the woman, so she felt she couldn't accept Edith's offer. This hesitancy on Frances's part regarding Edith writing her biography is interesting in lieu of Edith's subsequent book. The project was soon abandoned. Frances was offered a part in the play The Chalk Garden with the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which opened on August 12, 1957. On her views of being an actor, Frances described in 1958 that there had been a Frances Farmer, an actress, but she wasn't me. I was another woman working quietly, peacefully, almost devoid of dreams or hope. I spent 40 years of my life thinking, being, living, an actress. That's who I am. That's my identity. That's why I shall keep on being, and someday I'd like to be one of the finest actresses on the legitimate stage. Her second episode on The Ed Sullivan Show was in October and well-received. She sang Down in the Valley. most famous interview on a program called This Is Your Life, Frances was led through a dramatic retelling of her life by host Ralph Edwards, who asked intrusive questions, including those about her mental health and addiction struggles. She later said it was one of the most embarrassing moments of her entire life. Frances made several television appearances throughout 1958 and was having a steady climb back to success. So far it's been that way. It's, it's been a very active year for me after having been out for a long time, you know, to start in again. Mostly I've done just TV shows, Playhouse 90 and Matinee Theater, Studio One. And I've had a chance to do uh, quite a variety of different types of roles. She made her last film, The Party Crashers, with Paramount, playing the mother of former child actor Bobby Driscoll. This was meant to be his big comeback as well, but it was also his last film, and he died in obscurity ten years later. You didn't say anything to him, did you? I mean, a boy his age, three o'clock's not bad. It looks like he's been in a fight, and he seems very disturbed. That's not like Josh. 
What'd he say? Went in his room and closed the door. Ted. Ted, go in and talk to him. Oh, honey, honey. If he wants to talk, you'll come in and talk to us. He's not a baby anymore. Well, he's not a man either. Oh, you just got a shivers, What? Nothing. Francis and Lee Mikesell married on March 27, 1958, despite the fact that their relationship was already starting to fall apart. After being spotted by Indianapolis's WFBM television station manager in the Chalk Garden, Francis was offered her own television show. She and Mikesell moved to Indiana, and preparations for Francis Farmer Presents were underway. Francis was offered a contract for 13 weeks at $250 a week over $2,600 today. Episodes aired five days a week. Attempts were made to get Mike Sell a job in radio management, but nothing came to fruition. Francis was now earning all of the money for them, which was made worse by Mike Sell's jealousy and excessive spending. Around this time, Francis met interior decorator Jean Ratcliffe, who wanted to help Francis ghostwrite her autobiography. Mike Sell was wary, but agreed thinking it would be good for money opportunities. Edith Farmer said that having to relive her past made Francis return to drinking. Mike Sell left Indianapolis in February 1959, wanting to prove to Francis that she couldn't succeed without him. She mortgaged the Edsel she had won on This Is Your Life to pay the bills. Mike Sell sued Francis for breach of contract. In turn, she filed for legal separation. They weren't officially divorced until 1963, but had little to do with each other till then. In July 1959, Jean Ratcliffe finished her manuscript, and Francis was appalled by the contents. Edith Farmer said it was like a true confessions shock tripe story, and that Francis did not sign release for publication, demanding that Ratcliffe start over. Instead, Ratcliffe moved out of the house she had been sharing with Francis and abandoned the project. Francis became involved in the Catholic Church and was baptized in November 1959. She was heavily involved in the church choir, bold with the Parish Women's League, and directed productions. Francis wrote to Edith that the television station was working on a half-hour dramatic show, especially for her. She bought a house on North Park Avenue, which was close to where Jean Ratcliffe was living. The furnishings Francis bought for her new home were supplied by Ratcliffe. She spent much of her time with Edith, her dog Sport, and her cat Willie, enjoying time working on her garden. Job-wise, Frances was in a very fruitful period, as her show was top-rated and remained so until it ended in 1964. In a 1960 article for TV News, they described that Frances Farmer Presents involved Frances screening each movie before it is shown, and she is able, as is well known, to add much of her own knowledge of the picture and the stars involved to each script. She also reads all of her mail and tries to answer as much of it as possible. A lot of it comes from kids, saying they like this or that movie. Much of it is also from women, and additionally, from men pointing up a slight misstatement of fact she has made concerning a technical point. Just let me make a slight mistake, even a slip of the tongue, and the phone begins ringing instantly, she laughs. Frances also interviewed celebrities such as Ginger Rogers, Barbara Streisand, and even her ex-husband, Life Erickson. She said that her main goal with the show was to entertain and educate her viewers. 
Francis was cast as Irina Trepleff in The Seagull at the Purdue University Loeb Playhouse, which opened on March 8, 1963. She was named Outstanding Businesswoman of the Year by the Indianapolis Charter Chapter and received a Certificate of Recognition by the Department of Radio and Television at Indiana University. She was interested in writing her autobiography again, and Jean Ratcliffe was eager to help out. When Frances Farmer Presents was to be renewed again, Edith said that the station wanted to force Frances to resign, as her relationship with Ratcliffe was raising some eyebrows. While it's not known whether or not they were romantically involved, Edith said that the station caused on-the-spot program changes and evasion and avoidance tactics by the top brass when Frances asked to discuss her option renewal. This caused Frances to start drinking once again. She was offered a one-hour segment profile on the Today Show in New York City, which started off as a flattering portrayal and then devolved into a recounting of her arrests, drinking problem, and mental health issues, none of which had been discussed with Frances beforehand as being topics of conversation. She was distraught and horrified. The studio back in Indianapolis was concerned about her mounting drinking and did not renew her contract. Edith Farmer said that Frances was even more unstable as a result of arguments she'd had with Jean Ratcliffe over the autobiography manuscript. Ratcliffe even threatened to recommit Frances. The studio public relations man ended up negotiating an agreement that Frances could return to her show in July 1964 after a brief break. However, Frances was beginning to suffer from dizzy spells, crippling anxiety, and momentary blackouts which Edith said was undiagnosed hypoglycemia. The studio thought she was just drunk and promptly fired her. In this low point, with no offers coming through, Frances consented to let Jean Ratcliffe continue with the autobiography, which was also being worked on by Lois Kibbe, although Kibbe dropped out of the project after Frances's death, leaving us to wonder what exactly her contributions were in the final product. Ratcliffe moved into Francis's house, and the two also started a decorating business, which only lasted for three months. They attempted to start Francis Farmer's carriage trade in 1966, an antique shop which Francis had mortgaged her home to pay for. Meanwhile, Radcliffe was busy promoting a dancer in New York City, leaving Francis alone to run the shop by herself. She was offered the lead role in the visit and during the first week's run, she was driving home drunk and crashed her car. Frances was arrested, fingerprinted, and fined $75. Despite the fact that news of her arrest was in the newspaper the next day, she received a standing ovation from the audience. Frances closed the antique shop in November 1967, and in early 68, began working with Ratcliffe on their next business venture, a makeup line. Unfortunately, things fell through, and Frances lost all of the money she had invested in the project. Around this time, Edith Farmer received little to no mail from Frances, which was odd considering they were in constant contact throughout their lives. Edith began to suspect that Ratcliffe was intercepting their letters to and from one another. Her suspicions were heightened even further when she received a telegram after writing to Frances that she would contact her lawyer for help. The telegram read, in all capitals, which was odd since Francis was known to write in all lowercase. Just because I don't write to you is no reason to suspect that I am not of sound mind in minding my own business. Hope you are the same. 
Without telling anyone, Francis and Ratcliffe moved into a derelict farmhouse in the country and began working once more on the autobiography. Matt Evans wrote in an article about Francis that she told her story to the tape and Lois Kibbe, back in New York, typed up the transcript. Back and forth like this they went. Jean Ratcliffe rounded out the trio. She was there, as she put it in a letter to Kibbe, to, quote, mix the drinks and pick up the sloshed pieces, too, when Francis fell apart. Evans added that he accessed Kibbe's archival materials in Seattle and found abundant evidence that Francis, Jean, and Kibbe had become good friends, having a good time, despite the hard work of turning Francis's painful past into narrative art. The harsher realities are evident only fleetingly. For example, Jean, in one letter to Kibbe, casually mentioned that Francis never slept well, that she often cried out in the night, cowering by the side of her bed like an army vet suffering PTSD. In April 1970, Francis began feeling extremely ill and was checked into the Indianapolis Community Hospital for an esophageal biopsy. She was found to have a malignant tumor and stayed in the hospital for three weeks. Edith received a phone call from her brother Wesley that Francis had passed away on July 31, 1970, although her date of death is given as August 1st. Francis was buried in the Oaklawn Memorial Gardens in Hamilton County, Indiana. Her death was not reported in any national newspapers. All of her assets had been sold to pay debts and everything else was left to Jean Ratcliffe, which allowed her to publish Will There Really Be a Morning? Edith describes the book as cashing in on her exploitative friendship, an autobiography of Jean's own writing, full of salacious lies and libelous fiction. However, some truth does remain in this book, and Francis's experience cannot be discounted. Despite the complicated legacy that Frances and the retellings of her life have left behind, the impact she had as both an actor and an advocate for mental health in a time when mental health struggles were considered taboo cannot be ignored. Have you any thoughts, Frances, on how your cure came about on your recovery? Well, it took me a long time going this way, and uh, finally I, I realized that I would have to do it for myself. Because first of all, any cure to be effective has to be based on faith in oneself, which means faith in God. If you don't have that, why all the uh, tensions that are relaxed till the end of the world won't solve your problems for you, the reason why you are emotionally disturbed. I was able, in a kind of a grim and very lonely battle, to find this faith for myself or refind it and to hang on to it and it eventually led me out of the hospital and back to church which I think is the only place where you can find a really potent answer to the problems of, of the spirit in this world that we live in now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. I've been your host, Audrey Cornell. Please make sure to join me and my co-host Louise next week, and we will be talking about Francis's filmography. This episode of the podcast was written, researched, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. And if you're not impressed 
You can take them, leave them. They choose their own fate, say no. That's my little dreams for pretty girls to buy. And it's enough to make you mad. But it's safer just to break it down.